It's 20 to 9, you are with SFM. Time for word domination. So it's not often that we go and review a book of this nature. I haven't read the whole book. I've read chunks of it, and uh, I thought that we'd get the author to talk to us more. David O'Sullivan is uh, a broadcaster, an author, and so much more. And he's uh, written a book called Rassi, Stories of Life and Rugby, and it's all about the one and only Rassi Erasmus, who at one point in his life wanted to be called Tiger, because he thought um, that he that's what someone had suggested. That's right. One of his coaches at school said, um, come do this, Tiger. And he went, oh, that's a nice name. Because his <laughs> name was is Johan. Yeah. And so at he's school and Han. with his family, he was Honey. Yeah. And then when he uh, and he thought, no, the Tiger works for me. And nobody nobody took it up. But then, <laughs> then when he went to the army, anybody called Erasmus is going to be Rassi. Yeah. And so he's Rassi. And now I think people tend to forget that actually he's Johan. So there's so much I want to ask, and I don't want to forget this point, so I'm going to ask it now, even though it takes the story into a slight direction. When Apparently when he was in the army, he was in the army with Jacques Ninaba. Yes, that's right. That's where they met. They were in se- separate battalions, yeah. but they encountered one another. So yeah. they knew who each other was. And then when he became a player, junior player, his uh, Jacques Ninaba's wife was uh, part of the rehabilitation. She's also a physio. Yeah. And so the connection was made. And then when he started playing for the Cheetahs properly, yeah. Jacques was there. And Jacques and, and Rassi have been in and out of each other's lives constantly. Yeah. And so he's as close a mate as Rassi has of anybody. Yeah. So, okay, let's go back to the beginning because I am kind of jumping ahead of myself. The book about Rassi... So you're the, I suppose one could say the co-author. I'm the ghost writer is the official the ghost term. Writer, yeah. yeah. So um, the the way we did it was, Rusty would either come to my house uh, or I would go to him. Um, mm. We did sessions in Stellenbosch. We did some in his office at Saru, but for a period of three months, on and off, I we would get together and he would talk, and yeah. I would just. As you do, Michelle, every day when you're on air, extract stories out of people. That was what I was doing. So I extracted stories from him. So at the very beginning, I said to him, we at that stage, and I I can't believe it was only in January. It feels like a lifetime ago. I said to him, uh, we might be complete strangers, but we have to trust one another. Uh, and treat me like your therapist, because that's the way I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to keep going. And how did that make you feel? Because yeah. I need the emotion in the stories. I can't yeah. just get the story. What did it What did it mean for you is what we need to extract. We've got to go deeper than just the story that people might know if you're a complete rugby fan. And he went, yeah, okay, let's do that. And I said, what we must do is you must tell me everything. And because it's being done in the confines of the room, yeah. um, once I've written it all up, then you can decide what to take out. And in the end, we took nothing of significance out. The only things we took out were things that made the book too long. So they'd be... Oh, come on, tell us what you... No, I'm joking. Yeah, (laughs) they were like frivolous little anecdotes um, because the uh, publishers, Pan Macmillan, wanted roughly 100,000 words and I came in at 120. Otherwise, the book gets too thick. And so we said, okay, those stories don't mean anything. They're just kind of nice to have, but they're not... Important to have, but the all the important to have stories, the deep trauma stories mm. where he f- was at the depth of depression or at the heights of exhilaration, that's all in the book. So, you know what's interesting? Um, when I was, uh, as I say, I haven't read the whole thing, but I started, I started to think about how a ghostwriter works with someone. And the challenge, of course, is that it could become a hagiography, whereas, like, you're just singing the praises of the person. And 
who is it that points it in the direction where it doesn't become that? Well, that I, I feel because it's the first time I've done something like this. Is the, mm. the the role of the ghostwriter is to extract the stories and know which are the stories that are going to resonate and work. And also, you've got to understand the audience. Who's this aimed at? And, mm. and Pan Macmillan, a, a wonderful publisher called Andrea Natras, yes. was very. You know Andrea. Yeah. Um, she was very firm in that this couldn't just be a rugby book. It had to have a wider appeal. Mm. So I then realised that the stories. Um, of his childhood um, had to be of of great significance. So to extract all of those, and it's as much I suppose if you are the the subject, you can guide, you know you can mm. tell all the good stories and leave all the bad stories out. You just don't disclose them. But in Rusty's case, he told all the bad stories as well. I wasn't going to let him get away with not telling the bad stories. We needed all that, so it couldn't become a hagiography. But the challenge for me, Michelle, was finding Rusty's voice yes. because. This this is a, a an Afrikaans guy coming from this conservative little town of Dispatch, and here I am, an English-speaking guy, ten years his senior, yeah. uh, with no shared life experience whatsoever. <laughs> so how do I? What about rugby? Isn't that the shared life experience? You know, I used to be a presenter here at the yeah. SABC, so it's quite fun for me to stamp around these corridors yeah. where I years ago used to yeah. present TV, um, and so. But I was never a player. I was always the the person watching it and yes. talking about it and interviewing players, and so we we didn't have any shared experiences. But I found that, and it was the big challenge. And Andrea kept saying to me, "You've got to find his voice. Got to find his voice." And when I wrote the first few pages, she'd sent them back and said, "Nah, don't think this sounds like Rassi." And I thought, "I don't know how I'm going to do this." And then what happened? was I woke up one morning, three o'clock in the morning, after, and this is what happens when you do breakfast radio. Yes, yeah. All those years of doing Kai FM's breakfast show, I still wake up early. And I had his voice in my head because he'd been chatting to me for days upon days upon days, for eight hours at a, a stretch. Rusty took no breaks. And then I realized, oh, okay, I can hear him. And I went downstairs and I started writing and then it flowed. And so what happened was most mornings, three o'clock, Bing, Russie's in my head. Go down, says, I'd start working, <laughs> and I could get 4,000, 5,000 words done before the kids woke up. So it was yeah. actually, it, it really helped me meet the deadlines. What does but it that's mean? How I, I mean, I, what do you mean, find someone's voice? Because I'm, I'm assuming that as you're doing the interview, you're recording as well. Yes. So then you would take the recording back and you would uh, then trans transcribe it or whatever the case. Mercifully, surely it was transcribed then, for me. But a wonderful transcribe. Surely then that is. That's the voice. Yes, that's right. So that's uh, you, you've now got the content on the page, uh, yeah. as uh, the transcription of the of the conversation. But they are long conversations, and you've got to summarise that yeah, into a few pages. So I've yeah. got to I've got to take that, and that's the information. But how do I make it work in yeah. book form? There's one thing talking; it's another thing to see it written down. Yeah. But I ha so I had to then do that adjustment from the spoken voice to the written voice. And, and without losing the way he talks. So I'd be almost summarizing huge chunks, but yeah. I couldn't use words that Russie wouldn't use. And that would be often uh, cases where I would use a word that he had used, yeah. and then maybe Andrea or the uh, editor would go, no, I don't think that word. I said, no, that's, that's actually, actually his voice. That's actually his word. Yeah. And he would always say to me, oh, I speak such terrible English. And I go, dude, your English is so good compared yeah. to my Afrikaans. So 
Can you just shut yeah. up about that? Because there'd be times where he'd be struggling, thinking of a word, thinking of an expression. I'd say, say it in Afrikaans, so that, yeah. I mean, I, I do understand Afrikaans. Um, and they go, no. <laughs> but he, the other thing, Michelle, that was so funny is that Russi thinks in diagrams. So he, he would constantly want a pen and paper to draw a diagram. So when I first got to know him, uh, getting to know him, I would let this go. I'd come on, let's see where this is going. And then when I thought, sat down and went, okay, how do I write this? I can't write a diagram. And so then in the end, we'd say, give me a pen and paper. Okay, no. No, no. No, no. no diagram. <laughs> you talk. You can start to, he's probably like thinking of the rugby field and like where the player oh, yeah, sits uh, and, and that, that kind of diagram. He's got an amazing brain. And this is what makes it unique is that he, because he thinks in a very different way to others. So, you know, one of the things I thought when I was reading the, the beginning and about his childhood as well was he, I think that we don't, you know, because of how Rassi Erasmus has always put himself out, for example, on social media. I mean, everybody knows the stories of him on social media. They're wild and they're unruly and they're yeah. fabulous. But, and we also see him as he is with his teams, you know, in rugby and that. Very animated. Animated. And yet when you read the beginning, you know, the early the early stages, what A, you realize very complicated family, particularly in relation to his father. Yeah, alcoholic. Um, alcoholic and what that then means for a child and for anybody who has had experiences of having either an alcoholic father or someone who is an alcoholic in their family, you really know what that's about. But also that he he it, he notes that he's actually quite re, not retiring but shy. Yes, and uh, so when I said to him right at the very beginning at our first meeting, why do you want to do this? Mm. Because he said to me, "You'll judge me. I don't read books." I said, "Well, I've got a friend, Jason Goliath, who hasn't read a book, and he's properly smart. So don't mm. worry about that." Yeah. But it was part of the. I've got a study full of books mm. um, it was one of those things that differentiated us but it wasn't something I was going to judge him on and I said what do you want then from this book why do you, you do, why are you doing a book if you're mm. not a book person and he said because people misjudge me they think they know me and they don't know me yeah. so the first page and a half of the book is all about Rassi and he absolutely insisted we have it. And I'll just tell you one section. It, I, I wrote this part. People think I'm extroverted, but I'm not. I find social occasions difficult and I'm uncomfortable engaging with people I don't know. When I speak at news conferences, the original line was, I'm uncomfortable at news conferences. And he listened to it. He went, nah, chomp, change that. I'm nervous and I'm way out of my comfort zone. And then I realized that Rassi is the master of masking. He can put on a behavior that he understands is acceptable in certain social occasions, yeah. but he works at it. Yeah. It's not a natural thing for him to do. Um, that actually what he prefers to do is to be by himself or with his family and with his laptop and analyzing and watching rugby. That's Rassi in, a, in, his, in his perfect state. But going to functions and seeing people and interacting. Which is so much part of all of that as well. He's not yeah. a fan of that at all. And that's where people misjudge. So we have to go to a break. But when we come back from the break, what I'd like to just, I mean, there's this amazing um, part in the book where he talks about the selection of the team and, and what that really was about. And A, it talks to the challenges of transformation in the country and how he engaged with that. But it also made me think about what was it about that personality that you've just described now that could do the choice of that Spot team? On. Spot like on. What, how did you join those two? We'll go to the break and come back to that.
Fascinating stuff. We're talking to David O'Sullivan about the writing of the book, uh, ghostwriting, but writing alongside the book about Rossi Erasmus. Seems appropriate. And, you know, I was at an event two nights ago, two or three nights ago, and even at this event three nights ago, the first thing that the keynote address said was, ah, celebrate, celebrate, celebrate the rugby. And it's amazing how it's like woven this real thread into our souls and who we are as South Africans. But David, we were talking about what what you understood right from the beginning of his personality, Rasi Erasmus, to the and I'm joining trying to join the join the thread. I'm trying yeah. to figure that out. Is how was who was this person in the beginning who says he was um, retiring or shy or whatever the case may be that could then um, come together with the transformation as he did? Well, he hyper focuses on rugby, Michelle. It, it's his entire life to the exclusion of almost everything else. Yeah. And so when he, he confronts all the challenges of rugby and one of the things that happened to him, well, we spoke about his uh, alcoholic father mm. and it was embarrassing for him. This word embarrass and embarrassment is all through the, it's like a thread mm. that runs through the book. It was embarrassing for him and he is at pains to avoid embarrassing people or being embarrassed himself or humiliation. When he was a player, the quota systems were introduced and the New Zealand coach of the Cats, as the the super rugby team was Mm. known, uh, was a guy called Laurie Maines, a New Zealander, who didn't understand the dynamics of South African society. He said, okay, well, if I've got to start with four black players, he then went to a guy called Conrad Jainchis, Surely one of the most prodigiously talented sportsmen ever produced in South Africa, having played international cricket, soccer and rugby at junior level, could have played any of them, Mm. chose rugby. He said, Conrad Jainchis, you can start the game, but you play for seven minutes, fake an injury and Dean Hall comes on. And Russi was the captain and he said this we cannot do because he saw the humiliation in Conrad Jainchis' face and the embarrassment of Dean Hall because he knew that he shouldn't be that he that that Conrad should be playing the game. Mm. And so he said, No, we can't do that. And this was at the back of his mind the entire time. So when he started his transformation program, he said, We can't do it like that. We can't have white out black in. What we have to do is we've got to start a program called and he's called it the Elite Players Development Pathway, the EPD. It's the it's the thumping drum that drives Russi. The EPD is a program that starts at junior levels. He's got a network of coaches and scouts all around the country identifying young talent. And everybody who comes on their radar is given the opportunity. Was it Apiwe who went through through that? The, so, Apiwe Janji, there yes. are so many of them. Cheslin yep. Colby, Marvin Ori. The list is long yeah. of the players. Um, uh, Apalela Farsi, uh, I could go on. I'd, uh, uh, we had a list of them, and then we decided and not to put them all in because it, uh, we'd, we'd be in danger of leaving somebody else. But, uh, uh, somebody but else. there is that beautiful, beautiful thing that you end the book with where you say, you can be a boy from Bishops in Cape Town, Grey College in Bloemfontein, Paul Ruiz in, Jim, in Stellenbosch. You can be a boy from Hoer School, Brackenfell near Cryfontein. Jim Cheslin Colby. Jim Mvabaza, Senior Secondary School in King Williamstown. Makazola Mapimpi. Inyat Nyamba Primary in Zwede. Sierkalisi. Or you can be a boy from Hoer School de- Dispatch in Dispatch. That's right. And in many ways, that for me was just, and, and it was weird because when we were watching the game, um, 
a few weeks ago, someone that I was watching it with was like, you know, if you think about all the schools that these kids are coming from, or not kids, they're grown yeah. up now, you would have no idea. And, and actually, and you've got, you noted that again in the book. Yeah, Linden Hoerskul, uh, Jean Klein came from there. Hoerskul, uh, Nelspreit, just Dwayne Vermeulen, where normally it would be Paul Gymnasium, Grey College, there'd be a few elite schools and the players all mm. came from there. But these youngsters have all been identified. So there'll be kids who are 11, 12 years old now who are on the, r- the radar of the EPD. And if they find that their diet is no good, the skill set needs to be jacked up. There will be manuals, training manuals that would be given to the coaches that Rassi and Jacques and his team have developed yeah. over the years. And so this funnel, this, this factory is in full swing. Yeah. Just churning out players. And when Rassi chose his team to play uh, in the 2019 World Cup, I said to him, how many, how much of it was a political consideration? He just looked at me. Chom, there was no politics. He picked the best players. Oh, sorry. He picked the right players. And that's another one of his mantras. He doesn't pick the best players. He picks the right players. Because yeah. often the best players are not right for the team. There'll be somebody yeah. who's an individualist to Vinchat, as he calls it. He yeah. hates Vinchat. Yeah. Um, so he chose the players. Players who were appropriate for that yeah. moment, and there they all were. People like Makazola Mapimpi and Lukanya Amu have become folk heroes. Yeah. He and Jacques spotted them when they were going around the country yeah, as mobile Lukanya coaches. And, yeah. and they, they saw them and went, hold on, what are these guys languishing here? And then they gave the coaches their interventions. Yeah. Um, because Makazola Mapimpi, for example, his tackling was, was poor and so was his kicking. They went improve these but there was that mongrel element and they went that's the kind of guy we want he's, he's the he's the right player he might not have been the best winger but he was the right winger for yeah. that time and now look at him and look at Sia Kulisi. There's a wonderful story in it about selecting Sia as the captain. Oh, it's such a it's one of my favourite stories from the book. When that happened, I remember it all too well because I was working at Kai FM, and it was like a, a, a mini nuclear bomb had gone off that we now had our first black captain. And I remember my colleagues and our listeners absolutely exulting in this this development. And I said to him, that moment, it, it obviously was a big moment for you. And he said, no. He's almost embarrassed. He said, no. He had genuinely had no idea of the impact. So what he had done was, that we were, South Africa was about to play England in a three-test series in 2018. Yes, that's right. And he picked his team and he looked at it and said, you know what, I need the captain. Who's going to be the captain? Um, and who's the previous captain? Because he was new to it. It was mm. his second test match. And he said, okay, it'll be, uh, who's the last captain? Eben Hetzabeth. Oh, he's injured. Uh, let's make it then Warren Whiteley. He's injured. Uh, Dwayne Vermeulen, no, he's playing in France. The players don't know him well enough. Mm. So then he said, okay, I need a guy who's close to the referee. He needs to be able to talk to the ref. So he's got to be the scrum half or a flanker or maybe a prop. Who do I look? And he looked at his list and he went, well, it can't be Faf. Sia. He'd known Sia since Sia was 17 mm. years old. Know, yeah. he'd, brought, he'd coached Sia through the uh, Western Province Academy. He knew, and Sia was the cap, uh, the coach. Beg your pardon? He was the captain of the Stormers. Mm. And he went, oh, I know Sia. Sia, Sia can be the captain. He announced it to the team. <laughs> he doesn't go to him individually and go, by the way, I'm about yeah. to make you the first black captain. Yes. He just goes, okay, Mano, there's the team, puts it up on a screen. They all get to see it all the, at once. All at once. They all clapped and nobody made any kind of sign about it. Then he mm. went to the Saru executive and said, oh, by the way, there's my team. And their heads exploded. And just <laughs> suddenly, and he went, 
Chom, to this day, he just, he remembers how completely what he was about it. But people won't accept that. They go, no, no, he was driven by political forces. He never has been. Never just has been. driven by what's going to be best for the team. What's best for the team. And to avoid embarrassment and humiliation, you think, oh, my God, that sounds too simple to be true. But sometimes the simple things are actually the truth. I mean, in closing, David, it's funny. I was reading something that Tuli Madoncella, the um, former the public protector, wrote about how we could look at uh, this team and, and, and how they work together um, in terms of leadership, etc., when you wrote this book, did you have any idea that the flower widens, you know, or that, that just widens right up to other stories that come in, including this idea of, of leadership? Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many um, corporate messages here. Yeah. Teamwork, leadership, all of those things are, are uh, there's so many issues here because he is so unusual in the way he thinks. And I'll leave you with one quick anecdote on that. Jacques Nienaber uh, has a diploma in, I think it's business administration. Mm. He studied business management yeah. at tertiary level. And he said he was once sitting in a team meeting and Russi was at the board drawing diagrams and he went, oh my God, th- th- that's from module two of term three. He goes, Russi, where did you read or learn that? He goes, I didn't read or learn it anywhere. It comes from my head. <laughs> so I naturally was on, on thinking in those, t- in those terms. David. David O'Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us. Do I have to write another book to see you, you again, Michelle? You have to write another book. Jeez, you make me work. It's the been a pleasure. The book is uh, published by Macmillan Rossi. It's the story of Rossi Erasmus. And indeed, it's the story of our World Cup as well in so many ways. It's a great read, certainly what I've read so far. And I'm going to uh, look forward to reading the rest of it.